myself in the fact that I've never slipped walking up the stairs to preach. If I ever do, it's going to be that right there. Just I um I don't like to talk much about myself when I preach. Um but here's something that you may not have known about me. I'm a fan of the blues. And the blues has its roots in the Mississippi Delta. Much of it was sung by black bluesmen with gospel or Christian roots. They were like gospel songs sung in a minor key. God Don't Never Change is a blues song that was probably first recorded by Blind Willie Johnson in 1929. I first heard it when I bought a recording of Glenn Kaiser and Daryl Mansfield, two underrated pioneers of early contemporary Christian music, singing old gospel blues songs. It's a great album. Actually, there are two. But the words of this song are very simple. The first stanza says this, God in the middle of the ocean, God in the middle of the sea, the help of the great creator, truly been a God to me. Hey, God. God don't never change. God always will be God. The song proclaims a simple truth from the, from the pen of a, of a blind blues guitarist, singer, and evangelist. God don't never change. So the argument goes, then why do we pray? If God doesn't change, then why do we pray? So there's a sermon entitled, the Most High, A Prayer-Hearing God by Jonathan Edwards. And Edwards gives two reasons why God requires prayer. Number one, he said this. He said, with respect to God, prayer is but a sensible acknowledgement of our dependence on him to his glory. And as he hath made all things for his own glory, so he will be glorified and acknowledged by his creatures. And it is fitting that he should require this of those who would be subjects to his mercy. It is a suitable acknowledgement of our dependence on the power and mercy of God for that which we need. And but a suitable honor paid to the great author and fountain of all good. So according to Jonathan Edwards, we pray in order to give glory to God. And then secondly, Edwards says this. He said, with respect to ourselves, God requires prayer of us. He says, fervent prayer, in many ways, tends to prepare the heart, whereby it is excited, the sense of our need, whereby the mind is more prepared to prize his mercy. Our prayer to God may excite us in a suitable sense and consideration of our dependence on God for the mercy we ask and a suitable exercise of faith in God's sufficiency so that we may be prepared to glorify His name when the mercy is received. Prayer changes and prepares us for when God answers our prayer. God don't never change. We do. And all that God does is for His glory and our good. And so today, as we look at the next section of Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, we need to keep this in mind. 
Jesus is praying to the Father. So God the Son is praying to, to God the Father for the benefit of God's people in order to glorify God with the glory that he enjoyed from the beginning, the glory that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have enjoyed from before the beginning. And so as we saw last week when we started this section, this prayer it's all of John chapter 17, and it is sometimes called Jesus' high priestly prayer. This morning, we're going to simply look at verses 6, 7, and 8. So John chapter 17, verses 6, 7, and 8. Let me just read these three verses. Jesus prays, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them. And have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. It's fitting that we should stop and pray right there. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear today. Help us to understand the things that you would say to us that Jesus prays even for us in these verses that we might glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week I said that, that this prayer, John chapter 17, all of this chapter, Jesus' prayer here is reliable. God has answered and, and God continues to answer Jesus' prayer. We also saw that as Jesus prays, he prays for three things. Or, or really, this prayer has three parts. He prays in verses 1 through 5, he prays for himself, or, or more specifically, he prays for the Father and the Son to be glorified because of the eternal life that he has accomplished for his people. We saw that last week. Then in verses 6 all the way down to verse 19, he prays for his disciples so specifically, he prays for the 11 who are with him on that evening. Remember, Judas is gone, so it's not the 12, it's just the 11. But there is certainly application in all of this for us as well. And then beginning in verses 20 through the end of the chapter, through the verse 26, he's going to pray for those Christians who will come after the disciples, all those who will be saved as a result of their ministry. He, he prays for the church throughout history. And in these verses here, as he begins praying for his disciples, he starts by laying out four reasons that the Father should answer his prayers. Or really, four more reasons, in addition to the fact that he has accomplished eternal life for the glory of God, as we saw in those first five verses. And these four reasons that God should answer his prayer, they really don't just apply to the disciples, to the eleven. In the next few verses, he's going to be specific about those men, but these apply to anyone who would be called a Christian, anyone who would be called a disciple of Jesus Christ. And just a little something that I want you to pay kind of special attention to as we go through here. The truth is that while mankind has a specific responsibility to repent and believe, to receive and believe, Salvation is the work of God and the ministry of Jesus Christ. So the big words are, we are monergistic, not synergistic. In other words, salvation is all of Christ. Mono, one, him. 
We're not merely drowning in our sins and need someone to throw us a life preserver. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, and we need a, we need a Savior who can give us new life. But even more than that, Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That means exactly what it says. In fact, Paul there in Ephesians chapter 1, he kind of doubles down and he, and he also says this, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved Peter, in his writings, uses the term elect exiles. And then he calls us a, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As Christians, we have been given to Christ by the Father in order to proclaim his excellencies. One thing that we have to be careful about is this as we consider all of these things. We have no secret insight as to whose names are written in the book of life. A passage in Revelations 13 and again in verse, uh, chapter 20 mentions Christians' names are written in the in the book of life. But we are told that at judgment there will be many who will believe that they should be allowed into God's rest, that they should be allowed into heaven, but those people Jesus will say to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. However, we are called in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, to be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. You're called in, in Corinthians to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then additionally, Jesus tells us both in Matthew 16 and in chapter 18, depending on how you interpret it, either the church elders or the, uh, the church itself have been given the keys to the kingdom. The authority to bind and loose is the language that Jesus uses. Uh, authority that is recognized in heaven. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And that is specifically talking about judging the authenticity of someone's confession of faith. And yet from this prayer, we can see four reasons or four answers to the question, who are the elect? Or who are the ones that Jesus is praying for? Who are the ones that have been given to him? He tells us in verse 9 that he's not praying for everyone. He's not praying for the world. He's praying for those who have been given to him. So who are they? As he answers this question, he also lays out the specific reasons the Father should and will answer the Son's prayer. So who are the people of Christ here? Let me give you four answers right off the bat, and then we'll go over these. I know that some of you like to write things down. We're going to go over them individually. The first is this. They are those, the people of Christ, are those to whom he has manifested the Father's name. The people of Christ are those to whom he has manifested the Father's name. Second, they are those whom Christ took out of the world. They're those whom Christ took out of the world. Third, they are those who have kept God's word. 
The people of Christ are those who have kept God's word. And then number four, the people of Christ are those who have received Jesus as the one sent by God. Those are pretty much sentences made by Jesus in this passage, in these few verses. So who are the people of Christ? Well, first, they are those to whom he has manifested the Father's name. Again, back in John's prologue, back in the very introduction to the book of John, um, it's the last verse of the introduction, verse 18 of John chapter 1. John says this, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. He has made Him known. Manifested the Father's name. This is about so much more than, than just telling God's name to His people. So on the one hand, Jesus is fulfilling Psalm 22, verse 22. Psalm 22, 22 says this, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. I will tell of your name to the brothers. So he is revealing. He is manifesting. He is telling the name of the Lord to his brothers. He's just called them friends here. And yet on the other hand, in, in biblical terminology, the name sums up the whole person. And so we, to know the name of God is to know God himself. That's the point of what God says to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 when he reveals his personal name to him, when he tells him, Yahweh, I am. Listen to Exodus 3, 13, 14, and 15. Moses says to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Moses knew God. And the proof for the people that Moses could be trusted, that the things that Moses was going to say to them was trustworthy, was in the fact that he knew God's name. Knowing God's name is knowing God. Knowing God for the people of Israel is salvation. It was deliverance for them. To know God's name is to possess the way of salvation. Proverbs 18 verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. God wants his name to be known. In Ezekiel chapter 39, God himself says this. He says, my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel. And I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. And so Jesus prays here in verse 6. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And again, this, this is more than just simple earthly knowledge. Okay, his name is I am. Yahweh. It, it's more than that. 
Jesus has made known the name and, and really the nature and character of God to his people. So to know God's name is to know God. And here's what I mean. There are many different names for God in the Bible. And each of them tell us a, a, something a little bit more about who he really is. Let me give you a couple of examples, just a couple. Elohim. Elohim means creator God. It's used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Because of Elohim, Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. Because of the creator of heaven and earth, of all things. Another name is El Shaddai. It means God Almighty. This speaks of the, of the omnipotence of God, the powerness of God. Do you think the creator of all things, Elohim, do you think the creator of all things is any less than all-powerful, almighty, El Shaddai? Another one is El Roy, El Roy or El Roy, the God who sees, the God who sees me, the creator, the almighty God who sees you. His eye is on the sparrow. Do you know that he's watching over you? God heard the groaning of his people. He remembered his covenant with them. God sees. God knows. We should find great comfort in, in that, especially in these days of unrest. God sees. The creator God who is almighty sees everything that's going on and he knows how about el elion god most high god worthy of our praise and worship the one true god most high then of course he tells us his own personal name i am yahweh i am who i am this is his covenant name. It is in himself that he exists. He exists outside of time. He exists outside of space, outside of our universe. This is his covenant name as Israel's redeemer, the redeemer of his people. This is the name Jesus has very clearly claimed as his own when he said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And so when Jesus prays, I have manifested your name to the people you gave me, he's saying nothing less than Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, which says this, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The point of this part of the prayer is this. Knowledge of God's name is revealed only to his people. And this knowledge is a mark of the people of Christ, the people of the new covenant. Remember the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31? L listen to this part of it again. God makes this promise, and we 
participated in the renewal of the new covenant here when we ate of the bread and drank of the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, Jesus says. This is the promise of the covenant. Jeremiah 31, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I shall be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The people of God know the Lord. We know his name. We know who he is. The elect of God know the Lord in Christ. You want to talk about privilege? This is your privilege. Because you know Jesus. You know God. You know God. So who are the people of Christ? Look again here at verse 6. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. The people of Christ are those to whom he has manifested the Father's name. And they are also those to whom Christ took out of the world. As his people, as Christians, we have been separated from the world and are called to live in a different way. We're called to live under a new power. That power is holiness. Christians are the called out ones. We are sanctified. And this doctrine, we call it the doctrine of sanctification. This, this teaching of sanctification, it's, an, it's a doctrine of already and not yet. In other words, it has two meanings. We've already been sanctified. We have already been called out. We have already been separated. But we are also being sanctified. We're being made holy. Here, here's what this means. Sanctification, there's a couple of big words here, but you probably know them. Sanctification comes right after justification. So once you've been saved, and I like to say that salvation is sort of the junk drawer term for what happens as Christians. It's a big picture term. But once you've been saved, once you've been declared righteous in God's eyes, then you are immediately set apart. You're immediately called out of darkness, called out of the world. Though we still live in the world, Christians are no longer a part of the world. But sanctification also means that we are to die to the worldly way. We die to sin. We stop loving the world and the things of the world. And this is a constant, you know this, this is a constant lifelong process that will only be completed once we have reached glory. As we put to death the sin that so easily entangles us. Jesus says here that his own are those whom he has taken out of the world. We can't be a Christian without being different from the world. This isn't about clothes or music or movies or anything like that. This is about our relationship with sin. Sinclair Ferguson, he says of those whom Christ has taken out of the world, he said, they belong to a new family in which sin is not the order of the day. Instead, righteousness, peace, and joy mark the family life of God's people. That's straight from Romans 14, verse 17. 
Romans 14, 17 says this, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Sanctification, that's what Jesus is talking about here. It means that we have been set apart to God. We have been designed for His use, His possession. Again, I'll go to Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 4 says this, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. The, the elect of God, the people of Christ, are called out of the world to be sanctified to be holy and blameless before him. So listen to these three verses of this prayer again. John 17, 6, 7, and 8. It says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. The people of Christ are those whom he has manifested the Father's name to, those whom Christ took out of the world, and then third, they are those who have kept God's word. So to keep here means to lay hold of and secure. He's simply affirming what he's already said to the disciples when they were still back in the upper room. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then also he said, whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. The elect of God, the people of Christ, hold fast to Scripture. We believe it. We trust it. We obey it. We are transformed by it. The doctor, he was known. Martin Lloyd-Jones, medical doctor, preacher in England. He said this, You do not really keep the word of God unless you obey it. It is a word that cannot be kept only in your intellect. It has to be put in your heart and in your will also. The man who keeps the word of God is a man whose whole personality is keeping it. The man who is meditating and rejoicing in it, whose heart warms to it and so obeys it. And that brings us back, as we said last week, to Psalm 1. Uh, so I said last week that, that only Jesus fully kept this psalm. But as Christians, we are growing in that. And we rejoice in that. So, so think of just verses 2 and 3. Psalm 1, verses 2 and 3 says this, But his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, he meditates day and night. This is the difference between the people of God, the people of Christ, between Christians and, for example, the rich young ruler who claimed to have kept all of God's law from his youth. The people of Christ have kept God's word because Christ kept God's word. And we have his imputed righteousness. His righteousness, his keeping of God's law has been cloaked, wrapped around us. But we are also working to keep it. We're also working to hold fast to it daily. 
Not because we think it earns us any kind of merit or even salvation, but because we love and worship and obey our great Savior who died for us. And then finally, the people of Christ are those who have accepted him as the one sent by God. It's verse 8 here. Jesus prays, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Again, this is, this is John 1, 12, come to pass. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Think of the imagery of the good shepherd from John chapter 10. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. The elect of God are those who have come to know in truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Most High God. They have compared the teaching of the Bible with the claims of Jesus, even the signs and wonders that prove his claims. And they have found that he really is the way, the truth, and the life. This is why we search the scriptures daily to see if these things are so. Those who have done so, those who have believed in him are the ones of whom that he is, believe that he is the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. And so when Jesus prays for those whom he will call by name, he isn't praying for God to change somehow. He's praying for God's will to be done on earth as it, as it is in heaven. He's praying that God's name would be hallowed, glorified, and that his people would acknowledge our utter dependence upon him for our daily bread and our very life and breath and being and salvation. Christ has accomplished all that he was sent to do. He has saved his people from their sins. So at the name of Jesus, our knees will bow and our tongues will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, beloved, there's one thing I want you to take away from all of this today. If you are a Christian, Jesus is praying for you. If you're a Christian, Jesus is praying for you. Just consider that. He is praying for you. He's called you his own. And he is praying to the Father for you. He sees. Jesus was active in creation. Elohim. Creator God. He was there at the beginning. Jesus is God Almighty, El Shaddai. He's all-powerful. He defeated sin and death. Jesus is El Roi. He, he sees. And he knows. Jesus is praying for you. Just take comfort in that today. Let's pray. Father, as we consider these things, we rejoice in the simple truth that Jesus is praying for us. That he is at the Father's side always living to make intercession for his own people. We thank you that salvation is nothing that we could do. That if I could lose my salvation, I would. 
We thank you that salvation is all of Christ and what he has done. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to grow, help us to search your word and see if these things are true, help us to understand. But, Lord, help us to rest in the promise and the truth that Jesus Christ is praying for us, praying for me. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.